Hi, everybody. I'm Kate Brannon with Foreign Policy. Thanks so much for coming today. Um, oh, thank you. This is a big week for the defense budget as both the House and Senate budget committees are going to unveil their, or expected to unveil their blueprints for 2016, which will give us an insight into their approach to defense spending and spending overall. Um, and it's expected to be uh, not a fight between Democrats and Republicans, but in a fight sort of internal to the Republican Party, which we've seen brewing for some time. But uh, it's really coming to a head, I think, this uh, spring with fiscal hawks and defense hawks kind of going toe-to-toe um, over what the top line should be and whether the Budget Control Act um, spending cap should remain in place or if defense should um, be given more money as the Pentagon and White House have requested. Um, so we have this panel here today, which I think is a great way to start off the week to tee up some of these issues that we're going to see play out this week and then uh, obviously going forward. Um, so let me start by introducing everybody. Um, at the end is Chris Preble. He's the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy here at Cato. And in addition to writing uh, books on national security and teaching courses on foreign policy at um, lots of colleges, including the University of California Washington Center, Chris was also a commissioned officer in the Navy, serving on board the USS Ticonderoga. And next to him is Dov Zakheim, who from 2001 to 2004 served as the Pentagon Comptroller and Chief Financial Officer at DOD. And he also served as DOD's Coordinator of Civilian Programs in Afghanistan. And he advised multiple presidential candidates. And he is also a member of the Congressionally Mandated Military Compensation and Retirement Modernization Commission, which just came out with its recommendations in January, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, as they uh, very much pertain to sort of the overall budget debate. And then uh, next to me on my right is Mackenzie Eaglin. Mackenzie's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on defense strategy, defense budgets, and military readiness. She always has her finger on the pulse of what's going on in Congress. Previously, she was the principal defense advisor to Senator Susan Collins of Maine. And she's also served at the Pentagon, working at OSD and on the joint staff. And next to her is Todd Harrison, uh, probably my go-to budget expert whenever I have a story that involves numbers. He is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, and he joined CSBA in 2009, coming from Booz Allen, where he supported clients across the Defense Department. And Todd also served as a captain in the US Air Force Reserves. So that's our panel. Um, they're super smart. And they're ready to take your questions. And we are going to start with Todd, actually, to sort of paint the budget um, scene for us. Thanks, Kate. Uh, I just wanted to start off uh, by talking about what's the current uh, budget situation in terms of the numbers, kind of an overview of that, uh, what to watch for in terms of the process uh, in the next few weeks and months, uh, and then what are the big issues we should be watching uh, this year in the U.S. defense budget debate. Uh, so uh, at the beginning of February, the president submitted uh, on time for only the second time in this administration, uh, the budget request, uh, FY16 budget request. That included $534 billion for DOD. Uh, if you include all of the other national defense uh, budget uh, that was within that budget request, it was about $561 billion. Of course, uh, we have something uh, still in effect called the Budget Control Act of 2011, and that set caps uh, on what we could spend on defense and non-defense spending. 
Uh, and we are still at those original cap levels uh, for FY16. Uh, previous deals to modify the Budget Control Act uh, raised the budget caps for 2013, 2014, and 2015, uh, but those deals did not affect the budget caps for 2016 and beyond. Uh, the budget cap for 2016 for all national defense is $523 billion, and as I said before, uh, the administration is requesting $561 billion. Uh, now, DOD's share of the budget cap is typically about 95.5% of national defense. Uh, so that comes out to about $499 billion for DOD compared to $534 billion that's being requested. So uh, if Congress were to pass what the president requested into law, if they were to appropriate that amount, and no changes were made to the BCA, uh, then it would trigger an automatic sequester of about $35 billion, which would be spread evenly across all applicable accounts uh, within DOD. Uh, now, I think that's highly unlikely that that will actually happen, uh, because why on earth would Congress appropriate $35 billion more than they know uh, would be allowed without changing the BCA budget caps? Uh, so in all likelihood, either Congress will end up appropriating to the budget cap level, or they will raise the budget caps and then appropriate to that new level. Uh, so I, again, I'd say it's highly unlikely we have a sequester this year. But the budget caps are, in effect... Uh, and will be enforced one way or the other. Um, so that's where process becomes important. The Budget Control Act is already the law. It's already written in the books. If Congress does nothing, it remains in effect. Uh, so as this budget starts to work its, its way through the committees, it's important to be mindful that the BCA is already there looming. The first set of committees to usually move in the budget, of course, are the budget committees. Uh, and I believe they're going to be out next week. Uh, I'm sorry. Tomorrow. <laughs> They'll be out tomorrow uh, with their initial positions, both in the House and the Senate, on what they're looking for in the budget resolutions. Uh, and I'll, I'll let others, I'll let McKinsey and others uh, talk to that, what we're likely to see there. Uh, but again, they can propose whatever they want in these budget resolutions. And first of all, uh, a budget resolution is not a law. It doesn't get signed by the president. It doesn't give you any money to spend. It's just guidance within the Congress to the other committees. Uh, and they could exceed the BCA budget caps in those budget resolutions. It wouldn't change the BCA budget caps, though. Uh, the next committee uh, to move is usually the uh, authorization committees, uh, the House Armed Services and Senate Armed Services committees. Uh, they would, in theory, uh, mark to whatever level was set uh, by the budget resolution if we have a budget resolution. Uh, that's been passed, a concurrent budget resolution. Uh, if not, uh, you know, it's a, who knows what they'll be marking to. <laughs> um, but it could, it could be something well above uh, what the BCA budget caps allow. They will eventually pass the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, and that may imply a level of funding that's well above the budget caps, but you know what? You can't spend an authorization number. I think John Murtha, the late John Murtha, used to say that all the time because he was an appropriator. It's the appropriations bills that actually set the funding. That usually is the last set of committees to move. Uh, and of course, we're not likely uh, to see an appropriations bill passed by October 1st, when it's supposed to be at the start of the new fiscal year. But ultimately, it's the appropriations bill that's going to count. If, those appropriation, if the appropriations bill for defense comes in at a level higher than the budget caps, then that triggers a sequester. Right Now, as I said before, I don't think that's likely to happen. They'll either adjust the caps or reduce the appropriations to fit the cap one way or the other. Uh, I think they'll avoid a sequester happening again. Uh, but that, that, I say all of that to put it in context that 
you know, what really matters here the most are those BCA budget caps and what is Congress going to do uh, to alter or not do uh, to alter the BCA budget caps. Um, looking forward, you know, what are the big issues within the defense budget? And quite frankly, these are regardless uh, of whether Congress raises the BCA budget caps or not. Uh, the big issues to watch, number one, acquisition reform. I say number one because I think we're likely to see something happen on acquisition reform this year. Um, you know, with uh, Thornberry taking over the HASC and McCain taking over the SASC, uh, both of them had made acquisition reform a priority. They did some groundwork last year. Uh, on this issue, uh, and so I think we're likely to see something move this year on acquisition reform. Do not expect a silver bullet, one does not exist, <laughs> for acquisition reform uh, that will magically fix all our acquisition problems, uh, but I think we could probably make some incremental reform that improves the system, uh, although I'm not expecting systemic change like is really needed. Uh, you know, the next big issue uh, to look for is compensation reform. And maybe uh, our fellow panelists here, uh, Doug, Doug Zakheim, can speak to this more. Uh, but the Military Compensation Commission reported back, uh, and uh, there were three, I think there were 15 recommendations. Three of them had a significant budgetary impact. One had a big budget impact for the VA because it concerned veterans' benefits. Two, though, had a big budget impact for DOD. Uh, one would change the retirement system. Uh, and the other uh, would change the health care system. Uh, and I won't go into detail about those, uh, but if Congress were to enact uh, that kind of compensation reform as proposed by the commissioners, uh, that actually would have a pretty significant budgetary impact for DOD, not in FY16, but over the next five to 10 years, it would have a huge budgetary impact uh, that could relieve a lot of the pressure that we're, that we're seeing within the defense budget. Not all, but a lot. Uh, the other big thing that people are not talking about that much anymore uh, is the size and shape of the DOD civilian workforce. Uh, and you know, I, I'll let McKinsey and others talk to this because I know McKinsey has written about this extensively before. Uh, but I, I will just say this, that I just got back from a trip to Japan uh, and I'm trying to readjust to the sleep cycle here. Uh, but in my discussions with folks in the Ministry of Defense there, uh, I realized that uh, we have a very different ratio uh, of military to civilian personnel uh, than our Japanese counterparts. I believe for the Japanese, the ratio is about 11 or 12 to 1, military to civilian. Uh, they were shocked when I told them that the ratio for the U.S. was closer to 2 to 1. Uh, we have many more civilians uh, in our workforce uh, than the Japanese do. Now, it, are, they are probably on the low end. They probably have too few. Uh, but I think we are probably on the high end, that we have too many, uh, you know, compared to what other countries uh, have uh, and what we probably need in our workforce. And it's something the Pentagon has really not made much progress uh, towards uh, addressing in recent years. Um, so I'll leave it at that uh, so we can get to the, the Q&A uh, quicker, and so I won't uh, say too much that my other panelists uh, were going to talk about. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Preble, for having me today. It's good to be at your auditorium. is beautiful. The renovations look good. Thanks, all of you, for showing up and for Kate and everyone, for moderating and everyone else for being here. I'll try and pick up a little bit where Todd left off. And I think the if, if you're talking about Pentagon or defense reform, to me, there are four baskets or four portfolios of reform. The first is acquisition reform, which I think is universally supported, but 
uh, that's sort of where the agreement stops on what to do about it and how to implement it or, or how to unwind certain parts of, of the current system. <clears throat> the second would be military pay and benefits, military compensation for currently serving service members or those who, who may sign up in the future, assuming you would make changes to a grandfathered force, which I suspect would happen if anything were to happen. I'll get to that. Then the third is infrastructure. You know, the Defense Department is not only the largest organization in the world, no surprise, but they have the largest number of assets and buildings and basing and infrastructure and real estate of any organization in the world. Uh, that's the third area of reform. And then the fourth would be the size and reach of the defense civilian workforce. And as Todd already outlined some of those numbers, it's depending on how you calculate it with foreign indirect hires or not, it's basically 750 to 800,000 people on the Defense Department federal civilian payroll uh, right now. So that puts the entire organization for the Defense Department at 3 million people. Uh, certainly, the untouched workforce, if you look across the, the Defense Department, uniformed, active guard and reserve, federal defense civilians, and then the third one would be federal defense civilian contractors, the untouched workforces are those last two. And in fact, it's not even that the, the defense civilian workforce has remained static since 2008, and I call out that year, not because it's when this president took office, but actually because, uh, or early the next year, but it's actually, of course, when the recession hit. And it's also when other priorities uh, moved through Congress. It's when, it's, it's after the budget peaked in 2010. And it's after the uniformed uh, uh, active duty forces have been drawing down at a rapid clip. The defense civilian workforce has grown quite significantly, actually, in the last six years. So it's very, it's, those three, excluding acquisition reform, I think are the topics we're going to talk about today, but we can certainly talk about any of those four portfolios. I see very little progress on the fourth one, partly because one, the Pentagon doesn't know what to ask for and doesn't necessarily, Pentagon leadership doesn't necessarily care. And I don't mean that, it sounds pejorative, I don't mean that as in they don't care. I think there's just a lot of other competing priorities at the Defense Department. Uh, and there's, a, there's a struggle to just figure out the top line and learn how to live within it. Uh, and, and try to get some budget certainty on the big picture as opposed to, to dealing with this. When Todd and I were, and others, I think, were at a roundtable with Secretary Hagel after his strategic choices and management review, we were all able to go around and ask him what, basically one question. And of course, I brought up the size of the defense civilian workforce, and he basically had a blank stare. He turned it over to the CAPE and OSD officials and said, well, we didn't even really look at it as part of that entire exercise, which was basically what happens for the Defense Department under sequestration in 2013. And then he, they basically admitted, we don't have the data. We don't know who these people are, what they do, where they live, how much they make, how much are white collar, how much are blue collar, how many are senior, how many are junior, how many are supervisors, et cetera. If you don't have the data, then you can't go make a compelling case to Congress why you want to right-size this workforce. Uh, Quickly, last point on that, Pentagon officials will say, well, look, we've, we're pushing forward for a base closure round, and that's how we will get our civilian reductions. That's certainly one way to get some, but still you're looking at several thousand. It's really not significant when you're talking about 750 to 800,000. So again, very half-hearted on the Defense Department's part, so there's no reason why Congress should necessarily care, and they aren't. Nobody's really spending any time thinking about this or looking at it. On the base closure uh, prospect, of course, this is the fourth year the administration will request a, has requested a base closure round. Congress has said no three times already. And I want to bring up an interesting statistic for this discussion, but also relevant to the base closure round, which is I, I, uh, I recently gave a presentation and I thought to myself, how much of this Congress, not this Congress, but Congress since the president came into office is new? 
And it matters when you think about defense decisions because you have a, a learning curve as a politician. And you also have a set of learned behaviors. A lot of us have young children up here. We can certainly talk about what that's like. Uh, so in the House and the Senate and in the, in the GOP in particular, since they have the majority in both chambers, 65% of the House and 60% roughly of the Senate are brand new to office, to Washington, to the job in Congress since President Obama took office. That's shocking because... And it really affects the defense things, the reform and the prospects for reform that we're talking about this morning, because these politicians know that all they have to do is say no. You want a base closure round? No. You want a base closure round? No. You want one? No. They don't work towards finding an agreeable solution. So they have this learned behavior that they can say no, but they don't have to figure out a better alternative. They don't have to help find the offsetting dollars to pay for not doing a base closure round, which is quite significant. Uh, so they have this, this, I think there's a, it's a deteriorating, frankly, uh, oversight um, relationship Congress has with the Defense Department. And for years, it used to be the reverse. The culture was that the Pentagon is, kept Congress at arm's length. And so I, I'm worried about the prospects for a reform. And frankly, you have a whole generation who've never lived through a base closure round. We had three, well, there were four rounds in the 90s and one in, or three in the 90s and one in 05. And the three in the 90s were within two or three years apart. And in many cases, and these are reported by other smart institutions and organizations, the, the, the communities that have turned around, it takes a while to be, to be sure, but there's a hefty dose of investment by the federal government when a base does close. Other bases become big winners who, who absorb a lot of the, the movement, so it's not just a lose-lose proposition, uh, that most economies recover fully and beautifully after base closure rounds. There are certainly exceptions to that. But we have a generation of politicians who just say no, don't care about a, a finding a solution, and don't understand that actually this is necessary. Partly because, I'm going to get to the third point before I wrap it up, even if we had a major regrowth again in the active duty military, a la 9-11 and the, what happened after 9-11, after we only grew the active duty uh, uniform personnel side in the Defense Department by 4%. And that was a significant ramp up for the nation. When you have 20 to 25%, depending on the service, excess infrastructure, and I'm telling you this because it's an excuse a lot of politicians will use, is well, we don't need a base closure round because what if we grow the, the force again? Well, you're certainly not going to grow at 25% because we just did what I think will be the largest growth we'll see as a nation for the next generation. And that was very significant, very expensive, and it was 4%. And so that's certainly not an excuse, but it is one Congress uses often, and I think they'll continue to use that. But that impacts the fourth portfolio, which is if you're not going to cut bases, then you're not going to cut civilians, meaning the easiest way to cut defense civilians. And then lastly, um, military compensation reform. It'll be a great way to turn it over to Dr. Zakheim. This is something I... I Todd and I have been talking about for years. Uh, the, before there was a National Defense Panel in 2014, there was a QDR independent panel in 2010. And that panel was significant because the president had just come into office. He kept at Secretary Gates as defense secretary, as you know. But remember, Democrats controlled both chambers of Congress. It was significant that a Democratic Congress agreed to a stress test on the Pentagon's first defense strategy under President Obama, which is effectively what that was. And I was a staff member to the commission, not a commissioner, but I helped write the language that became the precursor to what is what became the Military uh, Retirement Modernization Compensation Commission in reverse. We looked at the data, and we had access to everything from the Defense Department, anything we wanted. And we didn't just look at you know, recruiting and retention. We looked at the number of influencers, the people who could touch a, a, 
the young person in America and convince them that they should, they should join, to the propensity to serve, to the changing demographics of American military use, to obesity rates, to suicide rates, to uh, the number of personnel who get out after one or two tours, whether they graduated from the academy or from OCS. We looked at everything. And we said, we're paying these people with basically a system that was established, you know, when Leave It to Beaver was on TV. Families don't look like that anymore. Uh, a lot of parents have dual income. Most people have dependents now. Moms and dads aren't always the heads of families. Uh, we're paying them with a system that hasn't changed in decades. And youth don't stay with any, you know, most American youth aren't going to stay with one company for 40 years. And they're going to move a lot. And so it needs change, but we don't have the bandwidth to do that. And we certainly don't understand all of the ramifications that could impact all these other factors. So we said, you're going to need a presidential level commission to look at the issue. Unfortunately, that was right at the time that everybody wanted a presidential level commission. And it, then it became less uh, appealing because it was the time of, you'll recall, Simpson Bowles and um, Super Committee and debt reduction became the focus of Washington. Nonetheless, a very worthy and important thing to, to, to do and undertake. Uh, I'm pleased at where the commission is. Uh, I'll conclude with my last anecdote, which was when Todd and I were in a recent meeting, off the record, I told the whole room that I would buy drinks if Congress, everybody in the room, I would pay for their drinks if Congress made one, one step forward progress on military compensation reform. And it looks like I actually will be called to that bet because <laughs> they are going to make, take action this year, partly because of the thoughtfulness of the commission. And now here I am, the one who's been calling for this kind of reform since I think 06. Uh, I'm actually now a little concerned that they're going to move too fast, which I can't believe I'm saying that after all this time and uh, moving that ball up the hill. Uh, we can talk more about why I think that later. But those are the three sort of areas of reform. We already know the fourth, the acquisition piece, is going to see, see change. Uh, Mr. Thornberry, chairman of HAS, came to AEI, gave his maiden speech as chairman there, and he talked extensively about uh, his his vision for acquisition reform, that it'll be done in small pieces, it'll be bite-sized, there's not going to be an 11 McCain equivalent type of bill, and they're actually going to look at things to undo and unwind and take away, thank goodness, once uh, when they do it. And so that's sort of the state of play, and we can get to the more details in the Q&A. Thank you. It gets harder and harder to say something new the further are, down you are in the chain. I'm sure Chris will come up with something. Um, really a few observations. Uh, I'll pick up where Mackenzie left off. Uh, we are waiting, actually, as a commission for the president's comments to come to us April 1st. And that already will have an impact on how Congress reacts to all this. We've testified very enthusiastic Senate Armed Services Committee. Bo by the way, uh, both D's and R's. Uh, it was quite remarkable. In fact, a couple of the senators remarked, why couldn't Congress be as bipartisan as we were? Um, I'm not going to go there. Uh, the House, uh, a little more cautious, uh, primarily, I think, because they're more sensitive to uh, some of the veterans groups, uh, which ties in with particularly one aspect of our, one of our 15 recommendations, which is the health care recommendation. I'll walk you through the two big ones, retirement and health care. We can talk about some of the others, if you like, later on. Retirement, we're grandfathering everybody. Let's start with that. We also accepted as a baseline the 20-year retirement approach. We also accepted, in principle, the idea of defined benefit. 
which the rest of the country has moved away from. Uh, but, you know, not the rest of the country isn't necessarily risking their necks every day for 20 years. What we did was cut back. Right now, basically, if you retire after 20 years, they do 2.5% per year, you get 50% retirement. We moved it back to 2% per year, so that's 40%. And what we added was the equivalent of the uh, thrift savings plan that the civilians have. Now, 40, roughly 40% of the active military already uh, participate in that plan, even though there's no government match. We are proposing a government match. We're proposing automaticity. We're proposing up to 5% of, uh, of your pay in the government match. It's a really good deal. We also tie that in with the uh, proposed changes in the GI Bill. We want to sunset the Montgomery GI Bill. By the way, you pay 1200 bucks a year for that. Uh, with the 9-11 Bill that you don't pay for at all, it's a better deal. Um, and the change that we make there, and the reason I say it ties in with the retirement, is one of the things we wanted to ensure is that the force profile stays the same, both retention and recruitment. And we were able to work that. Rand did the studies for us. Right now, if you uh, uh, are there six years and commit to four more in service, then you can transfer your education benefits to your family. We changed that to 10 and 2. Stick around 10 years. At that point, you're eligible, if you give two more years, to transfer that benefit. That's a fantastic benefit. It goes to what Mackenzie was talking about in terms of the different nature of our force today. You know, when I got into this business 150 years ago, there were basically young single men in the military. Full stop. Now, of course, it's totally different. You've got women, you've got families with children. Priorities have really changed. Child care becomes very important, and this education benefit is huge for them. If you stick around 10, and then after two, you're eligible, we also, going back to the retirement side, offer uh, a new bonus, a continuation bonus, if you stick around four more years. So stay there 12, pick up the bonus. Now you're in for 16, and then 20 isn't all that far away. And that helps to maintain the force profile. With the government matching your contributions, and, and you have to opt out, you wind up well ahead than you are today. And it reflects a certain, it reflects the changing environment that involves everybody in terms of how they look at retirement. But again, we wanted to protect part of that defined benefit precisely because the military is in many ways unique. The healthcare side, um, we wanted basically to get rid of TRICARE, other than TRICARE for Life. TRICARE for Life, as you know, is the wraparound. You're eligible for Medicare, and that still doesn't cover everything. TRICARE for Life covers the rest. But for a lot of people, what TRICARE offers isn't all that hot. And the reason is um, DOD, in its own subtle way, has been renegotiating the TRICARE contracts, and the benefits keep shrinking. And the idea is to save money. We created a, a plan that's very similar to what the civil servants have, the FEHBP. There, uh, anybody who's been in the government, been a civil servant, no, you get 
dozens of these plans to choose from. And you can choose the plan that is most appropriate to your particular circumstances. Now, if you've got chronic diseases in the family, that's covered under a separate pot of money. So that doesn't really affect it. But what this does is it gives you choice. And we've, we, we propose a new allowance, uh, a health care allowance, that comes in addition to the government paying the premiums for families. Remember, the military person goes to the military treatment facility. That's not an issue. That continues. It's for the families. And this is different from the, federal, from the civil servant side because the plans have to include the possibility of going to the military treatment facilities for families. So now families have real choice. You choose a plan that suits you. You can go to the military treatment facility. And oh, by the way, you also get this basic allowance for health care, which is a sum of money that, hey, if you don't spend it on health care, you keep it. And what that does is get people to focus on things like wellness, which right now the TRICARE system doesn't even take account of. We call this thing TRICARE choice. And the whole idea, whether it's on the retirement side, on the health care side, and a lot of other areas, is to give the modern service person choice. They're different. And, you know, in combat, they're being treated differently, right? They, they now, they have tremendous independence. They get information from all sorts of places. They make choices. And yet, in the care of families, the care and treatment of our personnel, we're still very paternalistic. So we, we moved away from that. There are obviously 13 others. One example of, again, how things tie together, we want to give people financial literacy. They don't get it today. You know, you take an 18, 19-year-old kid, comes in, gets fire hosed for four hours, but, you know, busy doodling or whatever, you know, and doesn't know a thing. Well, if you're going to make choices about staying in, about health care, about what kind of retirement, about how to invest your thrift savings plan of monies, then you really need to be financially literate. Now, other militaries do that. We had the Australians come in and tell us about what they do. You need, it can't be just some sergeant who sees this as a collateral duty to get over with in one day who's telling you about financial literacy. And you don't want the young people to be ripped off by the loan sharks and other types that basically go after the, particularly younger people's money as soon as they get their paychecks. So that's just another example of how this all ties together. What's going to happen? Again, let's see what the, what the White House does. The president has to comment. He's, he's getting comments from DOD as I speak. Um, let's see what, how they react to all this. Because that's going to affect whether the veterans organizations have a louder voice or those who, who look after the active duty have a louder voice, you know, how Congress is going to behave and so on. So that's one area. We're very, very hopeful. Uh, we think you can read the recommendations on the web. You can read the report on the web. Draw your own conclusions about it. Um, but we polled, by the way, hundreds of thousands of active reserve and retireds to see what they thought of. It was a draft of our plan. Obviously, we weren't done yet. But we wanted to have a feel whether we were on the right track. 80% thought of what, that our proposals the package that they saw was pretty good and liked it. That was of the active. And to me, the active 
with all due respect, active and reserve are what count. And by the way, with reserves, not to, not to denigrate the veterans, but the veterans are coming from a different place, a different time, and we've got to think ahead. So we don't want to undermine what we're doing for our vets. And we have recommendations about VA, DOD cooperation, some of the things that, you know, it just blows your mind how these things go on. You know, the suicide rate for vets is huge. But the DOD formularies aren't the same as the VA formularies. So some person who's got PTSD, who's getting some treatment while they're in active service, they then go to retire, they go to the VA, and the doc says, well, I can't give you that one. That's the worst thing you can do to a veteran. So it's not like we diminish the importance of the veterans at all. Now, I didn't mention a thing about money yet. And, uh, you know, I was on this commission in part because I was comptroller. In fact, one of the things they used me for was to see whether our new health care plan, as we proposed it, could be rated by DOD comptroller the way it has been in the past. So I kept trying to figure out ways to undermine the plan until I cried uncle, and that's why we came up with what we came up with. Um, our, our proposals save, will save on balance about $12 billion a year. Not huge bucks, but not trivial dollars either. And you have to look at that in addition to the other potential savings that, that uh, you've just heard discussed to see that you can talk about significant dollars if it all added up. Now, we, you heard about BRAC. The, the administration has come back essentially with the same, did come back with the, virtually the same proposals they made last fiscal year. Not just about that, about Apaches and reserves, about getting rid of mothballing cruisers, uh, you know, A-10s you've heard about. The interesting thing, of course, is when they said this was last year and we're coming back this year, is they actually came back eight weeks after Congress had acted. So last year wasn't last year. Last year was eight weeks before. Now, I don't know, maybe some people changed their minds over eight weeks, uh, probably if they lost the election, but then it doesn't matter. Um, so I wouldn't stake the family farm on BRAC or on most of these changes. You would save significant bucks on BRAC, clearly. You could save significant dollars in acquisition. I testified in front of Chairman Thornberry when he was having his acquisition hearings. One of the things that concerns me is not just the number of civil servants, and I think Mackenzie's done wonderful work on that, and I'll come back to that momentarily, but the actual knowledge of these civil servants. You can, if, you go, if you're in the military, you have a thing called professional military education. You can't move up the chain unless you're educated. War college, staff and command college, all that. You can get your master's in physics, go into the government, and never take another course for 40 years. Now, if you think about how Moore's Law relates to that, you begin to see that we have a, an uneducated workforce, at best an undereducated workforce. So we need not only to deal with the number of civil servants, but the quality. These are bright people, but there's no mandating of their going out or spending a year in industry and learning how industry works, or going out to a business school and getting a business degree. Some of them are self-motivated. But very often, the ones who leave come back and the boss says, well, there's no job for you, even though there's supposed to be a job for you. So we need an educated workforce as well. Otherwise, all the reforms aren't going to work anyway. Um, in terms of numbers, 
here's how DOD plays this game. It's not, it's not a new game. The great Doc Cook came up with it years ago. You know, there's a th I'll tell you the Doc Cook story, and then I'll tell you what DOD's doing, then I'll sit down and shut up. Um, years ago, Congress wanted to cut OSD. So they passed legislation to cut OSD. So now all of a sudden, you had all these thousands of civil servants that were being cut. What did Doc Cook do? And he was a genius. He created White House Services, totally new agency, and everybody went into White House Services. Not, nobody was cut. White House Services is still there today, WHS. If you look at what's happened with personnel, McKenzie's right, but not entirely right. Yes, we've cut people. Well, actually, you said we haven't, and that's the right part. We actually have cut 74,000 people in the last few years from the Army, Navy, and Air Force, civilians. They all went to defense-wide. <laughs> the fourth estate that nobody understands, nobody looks at, nobody ever cuts. And in fact, the projections are, I think it's another 16,000 civilians are going to be added over the next couple of years. And what Ken Calvert, who's pushing legislation to cut 15% of the civilian workforce over the next few years, keeps arguing, and rightly so, is, okay, we've added some 70 to 80,000 civilians over the, you know, since 2001, and we've cut the military significantly. Have the civilians made DOD more efficient? Anybody who believes that, please raise your hand right now. That's what I figured. And so we have an imperative here because it's not only the defense civilians. You got another, I think, 600,000 contractors. We actually, the ratio is even, is so much worse than the Jap if the Japanese really understood how bad the ratio was. The tooth to tail ratio, if you call tooth anybody wearing a uniform and tail anybody wearing a suit, is roughly one to one. That is pretty unbelievable. And I'll stop right there. Thank you all. That was, that was terrific. Um, and uh, thanks to all of you for attending. Thanks especially, too, to Kate for acting as our moderator today. Um, I'll say that before she asks the tough questions. Um, I just want to make three points today, uh, and then we'll turn it over to Q&A. Um, first of all, we are spending a lot on our military, um, and I think we will spend a lot over the next decade, regardless of what happens, based on what Todd just said. Um, second, we are, or we appear to be, getting less for what we spend, um, which is why a number of people think we should spend more. And third, I think that reasonable efforts to bring this under control, to get more bang for the buck, are unlikely to succeed for all the reasons people said. It's going to be hard, uh, but it'll be harder still if the budget increases significantly. I think there's a better chance for reform under the current caps or some constrained uh, as opposed to increases. So point one, military spending in inflation-adjusted terms is still quite high in historic terms. Uh, if you take out the cost of the wars, uh, you look just at the Pentagon budget, we're going to spend, on average, in the next five years, more than we spent during the Cold War in inflation-adjusted terms. No one really disputes that. Now, a number of people say, in fair, fairly, that that statistic, absolute spending, inflation-adjusted spending, is not the best measure, not the best metric. Instead, you should look at defense spending as a share of GDP or defense spending as a share of total federal spending. And in that sense, it's true. 
Defense spending as a share of GDP has come down for decades, actually. And defense spending as a share of federal spending has been declining since about 2008. And probably sometime in the middle of the next decade, 2024, 2025, at, based on current projections, defense spending will actually be less than we pay on interest on the debt. Okay? So, so what we're spending as a share of total federal spending is declining. Um, it's interesting. When you ask the public, when you poll on this question, it's been asked by Gallup going back to the early 1970s, People, you ask them, do you think we're spending too much, too literal, or about the right amount? Um, it's about evenly divided, three ways. About one-third of Americans think we spend too little, one-third we, we think we spend too much, and about a third think we're spending about the right amount. Okay, so we're at, a, we're at a unique point. And these numbers do change. It's one of those polls that actually does vary quite a bit over time. Um, clearly, the, those in the spending too little camp, that includes Senators McCain and, and Representative Thornberry, the chairman uh, of the respective committees in the House and Senate, the Armed Services Committee. Um, they think we should be spending more. There was an article, they wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week mentioning that uh, President Obama's request is about $36 billion over the caps, and they want to spend uh, roughly $78 billion more than the caps, or, or a little bit more than twice as much as uh, President Obama. Uh, and the argument is that, you know, they, that the, the, the Republicans can't be taken seriously on defense if they're not going to spend at least as much as President Obama on defense. Now, they think that we're not spending enough because the military is too small. Um, and, well, it is. It's too small, of course, is a relative sense, but the military is smaller. Again, no one disputes that. Um, I actually, I looked this up today. I was reasonably confident, but I actually looked it up today. 1952, the height of the Korean War, active duty end strength peaked at 3.6 million. Active duty, 3.6 million. During the Vietnam War, peaked at 3.5 million in 68. Okay, so in the previous two wars, peaked at 3.6 to 3.5. In the latest round of wars, 2010, it peaked at 1.5 million. Again, this is active duty. This doesn't include Guard and Reserve. So less than half the total in uniform, and yet... Pentagon spending and inflation-adjusted dollars was higher in 2010 than in either 1952 or 1968, 35% and 32% higher, respectively. Okay? So just using that, and I think a similar story could be told with respect to the Navy or to, to airplanes, right? on the surface, it appears that we're spending more and getting less, or as, spending as much as and getting less. Well, do we? Do we spend more and get less? Um, and Dove already alluded to this indirectly. I mean, the military of my parents' generation was comprised primarily of conscripts, right? We had a Selective Service Act. People were obligated by law to serve, men, okay, to be precise. And often, not always, but often against their will. That wouldn't have been their first choice, let's put it that way, okay? It was just what they had to do, okay? And they were relatively poorly paid relative to their peers, and they received minimal training. Because, after all, it would be foolish to invest a lot of money and time in people who you didn't expect to retain. So they weren't very well trained, and they weren't very well paid. And, again, they executed their missions heroically under harsh conditions, but they were, by and large, temporary soldiers, anxious to return to their lives when either the war was over or their obligated term of service was up. The military today, with no disrespect at all to that of the World War II or, or Korea or Vietnam generation, is completely different, and I think the finest force in the world, in our history. Um, because why? Well, it's comprised of people who serve by choice, first and foremost. Um, 
Because they make this choice, we as taxpayers pay them reasonably well, especially compared to their peers. Okay? Um, and especially, and Dove again alluded to this, especially when you convince them or you get them to look at the entire package of benefits, not just their salary, not just the, but their entire package of benefits. It's a pretty good deal. Okay? Um, and also there's training. They get training that is, that is of value to them. Um, and so again, we're willing to invest in training because we're confident that some number of them are actually going to stay in. They actually, that this dividend, that this investment will actually pay off. So my point is we spend a lot, but I'm not entirely convinced that we're getting less. In fact, I think in some places we're getting more, and I think it's a debatable point, one worth debating, and I suspect we will. But I think I could make a similar argument with respect to ships and respect to, respect to, uh, to aircraft as well. Okay? But again, a debatable point. We're spending more, not in dispute. Why are we spending more? That's really what we're talking about today. Um, now, myself and others here, we, um, we believe we're spending more in part because it's not well allocated. Okay, and actually, credit, especially credit to Mackenzie and Todd, we all signed, not Kate, because she was exempted, <laughs> but Todd and Mackenzie and Dove and I, along with about 20 other people, signed this letter from three years ago, two years ago, two years ago, again, I'm losing track of time, two years ago, calling on DOD, DOD to close excess bases and facilities, re-examine the size and structure of the DOD civilian workforce, and reform military compensation. Three things we talked about today, and the fourth being acquisition reform. Um, and I think this is still a useful document, okay? Um, no one disputes that there's some waste in the Pentagon. It's how you get at it. And again, this is where I think there may be some differences of opinion because McCain and Thornberry in their op-ed that I mentioned, they admit there's waste in the Pentagon, um, but they say sequestration does not target waste. It cuts spending recklessly. Well, yes, but they do not say that if the Pentagon, if Congress, budgeted to the spending caps, then sequestration doesn't come into effect. So they could budget in accordance with the caps and not be subjected to the goofy meat axe. This is what Leon Panetta called it, the goofy meat axe. So if they had submitted a budget that adhered to these limits, they could make conscious, wise choices to try to better allocate the resources, whether they will or not. We don't know. It's pretty basic human instinct to avoid difficult choices. Um, if something can be postponed, it will be. Uh, that's why we haven't dealt with other big problems like the entitlement problems that we have in this country. Um, but I think that our government uh, has chosen not to do these things that we all agree are, are, make sense, in part because they don't feel like they have to, right? That they're not really being held to their, their feet to the fire. And I think they are less likely uh, to make those changes, difficult changes, if the BCA caps are raised or eliminated entirely. Um, one last point, and this is where I, this is where we haven't talked about yet as a group, and I suspect we can get into it a little bit. Um, everything that, that I just said and everything that everyone else has said presumes that the roles and missions for the military will remain unchanged, or at least, more accurately, will not become less onerous, right? In fact, there's an argument to be made that it's actually going to get harder in the next few years, right? Not easier. And therefore, it's unreasonable to expect our military to do the same or more with less, or even the same amount. Not reasonable to think them to do more with the same amount. It's unfair to the troops and the families. And again, McCain and Thornberry talk about this in their, in their op-ed. They said it would be shameful to ask the country's military men and women to do their jobs with shrinking resources. And they, citing statements of the senior military leaders, say that the military cannot execute the national military strategy with defense spending at sequestration levels. That's a direct quote. 
But that broader point bears repeating. The military says it cannot execute the national military strategy under the current resource constraints. And the only alternative, McCain and Thornberry imply, is to remove those resource constraints. Well, in due respect, we, we all, whether we know it or not, assign our military its roles and missions. These are not handed down from on high. They're not carved in stone tablets, okay? And strategy is, or at least should be, guided by resources, the resources that can be made available to execute that strategy. And so if the public, by and large, is unwilling, and again, this is whether or not it's reflected in the BCA caps and, and, and as the Congress interprets it, if the, Congre if, if the people and, and Congress are unwilling to provide the military with the resources necessary to execute the strategy, then that, to me, is an argument for revisiting the roles and missions of the military, which we haven't done generally speaking. Um, my point is simply this. We can make choices both in the structure of the military itself, and I think we should for the reasons everyone talked about, but I also think now's a good time to revisit those roles and missions, uh, and, and we can. Okay, We can do so. We have a choice. But the worst thing, I'll close on this. The worst thing that we can do is to persist in our current strategy and refuse to pay for it. And that's what it appears we're doing. Thank you all very much. Okay. So I'm going to ask one or two questions before I turn it over to the audience. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask about, as I've listened to the last um, few weeks of budget hearings on Capitol Hill, I've thought about how the tone has changed over the last few years. And I was thinking back to um, when uh, Admiral Mike Mullen was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he said repeatedly that the national, the biggest threat to national security um, was the U.S. debt. And that's something that you just don't hear anymore. Um, I don't think I've ever heard uh, General Dempsey say such a thing. And now, instead, it's really the cost-saving measures being taken are, are what is being warned about and what you know, poses a threat um, to the U.S. military and to U.S. national security. So I was curious to get um, our panel's opinion. What's changed here? Have other threats overtaken the U.S. debt? Has the U.S. debt been addressed and now no longer poses a threat? Or is something else totally going on here, whether it's politics or um, thinking back to Simpson Bowles? I mean, when that was in the air, it was just a very different. And that was only four years ago. So what's changed since then? Well, I'll give it a try. Um, a number of things have changed. Fracking, for instance. Um, well, the fact is that the BCA has resulted in lower deficits, number one. Number two, the economy is picking up, which means greater receipts for the government. Um, number three, it's hard to say, given numbers one and two, that, that, that the debt is the biggest threat when you got ISIS out there and uh, you haven't really lost any of your other potential adversaries. Um, when Mike Mullen was speaking, uh, Putin was still revealing his soul to the president, uh, for example. Uh, nobody had heard of an ISIS. Uh, China hadn't been as... Uh, bullying in the South China Sea and certainly hadn't clashed with the Japanese in the East China Sea. So, and, and North Korea was North Korea and is still North Korea. So if you look at the threats out there, 
or potential threats, and then at the fact that the economy has been recovering and that the uh, BCA has had an impact, I don't think it's politics that has led people to drop the issue. I think there really are bigger issues. It's not that Marty Dempsey is more blind to the overall economic picture than Mike Mullen was. Anybody else? So um, that is, I think that is probably the the most quoted uh, thing uh, Admiral Mullen ever said. Uh, People always bring it up, and I would love to ask him sometime uh, if he regrets saying that. uh, because that is the kind of statement I would expect to hear from maybe the Secretary of the Treasurer, Treasury or the Chairman of the Fed, uh, not from the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and so maybe that is why uh, you know, General Dempsey uh, has not said something similar. Uh, they want to stay focused on national security and defense. Um, in terms of the debt, well, let's talk for a second about the deficit, the annual amount uh, of new debt that we're occurring. Uh, that has fallen dramatically, as, as Dove said, uh, for a couple of reasons, because the economy has recovered from the recession, so revenues are back up. Uh, and at the time, we had very high levels of spending, and a lot of that was actually due to the recession as well, uh, things like the stimulus package. Uh, that worked its way through the system uh, and is virtually over now. Uh, so spending has come down because of the stimulus working its way through. Revenues have come back because the economy has recovered. And we had the Budget Control Act uh, of 2011, which also reduced spending uh, below what had previously been projected. So all of those things are making the deficit look a lot better right now. Uh, I believe it's dropped below 3% of GDP, uh, which most economists would say that's long-term, a more sustainable level. Um, But I think part of the reason people aren't talking about it is just because Congress and the American public tend to have a very short-term focus. Uh, And we look at the deficit now and we say, oh, well, things are better. Things are on a sustainable track. It's fine. But look out into the 2020s and look at what's happening to the deficit then. We know you can't predict the future, and I, I try not to predict the future because no one can predict the future. But there are some things we do know with a bit of certainty. And one of those things is demographics. We have a demographic bulge moving away, moving its way through the U.S. society. That's the baby boomer generation. They are moving into retirement. Uh, they are increasingly starting to draw Social Security and Medicare. We know this is happening now. We've known it for a very long time. And we know in the 2020s, uh, we're going to have a very large number uh, of baby boomers that will be drawing on Social Security and Medicare. We know that those costs are going to go up, and we know that that's going to increase our deficit at the time out in the future. Uh, At the same time, I look at DOD, and I look at all of the big modernization programs, uh, and I see another big bow wave coming, happens to occur in the 2020s. Uh, and so I think we do still have a debt issue. Uh, we do have a longer-term deficit issue, and I think it uh, very well may, in fact, uh, may impact defense spending and modernization programs in particular. Uh, and I think we're foolish to not be thinking about that and trying to address that right now. Okay. will be very brief because it's a great question. I think when the debt ceiling increase debate resurrects itself again later this spring and early this summer, I, I think you will f- – feel like the issue has not lost a lot of its potency for many members of Congress. Uh, Part of the, what we'll see when the budget, the House and Senate budget drafts by Republicans are unveiled this week is that you'll see basically a Congress doubling down, or party I should say, doubling down on their commitment to debt reduction, which was the purpose of Budget Control Act passage. And 
the you know their their defense increases you know that are going to come through OCO, is, but not through breaking the caps for defense and non-defense discretionary is significant. And I think it in 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 meetings where I've been with members, they are absolutely still convinced that this is uh, the still the number one threat. But does that speak for all of Congress? Certainly not. But it, since it's the party that's pushing the budget, I, I think it's still, um, if not a top issue, if not the top issue, a top issue. Okay. Okay. Can I just real quick? Um, the the other thing we should put on the table when you talk about the deficit um, in any given year, it's a function of both spending and uh, revenue, right? So don't focus just on the whole. Focus on the donut as well. And and I think again, for some people, solving the deficit problem is is fairly easy to solve by raising revenue, by increasing taxes. But of course, in the Republican Party, that's where the unstoppable force meets the immovable object. And so that's why it is such a contentious issue inside the Republican caucus, because of the aversion to new taxes. Okay. All right. I have one more question before we open it up to the audience, which I wanted to ask about the military service chief's warnings on readiness, um, which have been going on for a few years. I've lost track of time <laughs> around these issues. Um, I get some sense that they're falling on deaf ears. And I'm curious as to why you think that is. Um, is it a chicken little situation? Did they call this too early, um, you know, a year or two years ago? Because um, the warnings keep coming and they get more dire. But it doesn't seem to resonate, whether it's with lawmakers or with the public. Um, or maybe you're seeing something different, and I haven't quite caught up. Um, but does anyone want to take that, just sort of how those messages are going over and whether they actually are pushing the debate? I'll take a, a shot at this. Uh, and I have kind of an unconventional view uh, on readiness. I'll admit that up front. Uh, and I published a paper on this back, uh, I think, in August or September last year. Um, the way the service chiefs and the way the military tends to think about readiness is a function of how they measure it. And the way they measure it uh, is by looking at what I would call the inputs to readiness. Uh, how many trained people we have, how much training we've accomplished relative to the training plan. Uh, how much we have maintained equipment, uh, our equipment relative to what we said we wanted to maintain. All of those things are a function of how much money Congress gives the military, and that tells you how much of those things you can do. Uh, but that's not real readiness. Real readiness uh, is how capable our force is if they're called in uh, to combat, to do the missions and tasks assigned to them. How good are they at it? Uh, and that we don't have a good grade. Uh, and we don't really know in many cases how well our forces would perform uh, because we don't keep track and we don't aggregate and we don't report uh, actual performance measures uh, from readiness training activities that we conduct. We really just report what they're reporting to Congress is whether or not they conducted the training uh, according to their own standards. They're not saying, you know, what's the average bomb miss distance of a fighter pilot in this type of mission. Uh, and as a result, I think that, yeah, the readiness warnings are falling on deaf ears uh, in Congress because military has been saying this not just for the past few years, but for decades, they've been warning uh, about readiness problems. Prove it. Show me that our forces have actually degraded in their performance. I think they have. But I don't see the evidence for it. And I've been all over the Pentagon digging for this evidence. And people keep telling me uh, that, oh, yeah, we have it. We have it. 
Uh, you just have to come here and see this and see this classified briefing. Oh, but you're not cleared. Oh, well, I am. So come show me. And I've called their bluff on it a number of occasions, and no one's ever been able to show me uh, the actual performance data. When you dig through all the details, all it boils down to is did they do the training that they plan to do, that they want to do, not how well they performed at the training. We're not tracking that and reporting it to Congress in a systemic manner. Uh, so I, I keep getting frustrated with the military because I think there is is a readiness problem. I don't think they're communicating it well because they don't have the right metrics, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Okay, interesting. Anybody else? Oh, okay, to the audience. Um, a few things. Please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear the question and announce your name and affiliation. Okay, how about um, right in the middle toward the back? Pink Gaffney, formerly OSD and CNA. Um, I keep hearing that we don't get more money. We have to change the strategy. Chris just stopped, talked about that strategy. Would you give me in a capsule what that strategy is? And don't say pivot to Asia, because pivot to Asia was simply leaving what we had there while reducing in Europe and in the Middle East. What strategy are you talking about, and what is to be changed? Okay. Um, thanks, Hank. Um, when I say our strategy, I think the, the short version of it is, is primacy. That's what the political scientists would call it, and that implies that the United States will maintain such a vast military capability, not just for our own defense, but also for the defense of others, which is, in effect, to discourage them from defending themselves. This was the the premise after the end of World War II, and I think it's been remarkably successful. It has, in fact, reassured our allies and discouraged them from spending more on their own defense. And so, not surprisingly, they don't spend very much. They don't see the need, right? They just don't see the need. Um, and I think that was not an unreasonable um, strategy in the course of the Cold War, especially in the early days of the Cold War, when, after all, they were broke and broken and we were fighting a common enemy. I think it is harder to sustain over time as our share of total economic, global economic output declines in relative terms, and when we bump up against the domestic priorities, which we are now, we see that the American people is generally not, are generally not inclined to pay for other people's defense if they believe correctly that they could pay for it themselves. But that's the part of the strategy that has never really been scrutinized. Um, most people still believe, most people in Washington still believe that the benefits we derive from defending other countries are greater than the costs. Uh, and so that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about changing the strategy. Anybody else want to take that? Nope. Okay. Let's go to the front row. Thank you. My name is Li Yang. Uh, when we talk about budget, yes, we talk about debt, and we talk about a balanced budget. But whether they have commission or not, that really doesn't matter. They didn't really improve, probably, I should say, almost nothing. But what I am trying to see, if see anything anywhere who can really identify how much we can save 
because abuse or because of dysfunction or because of disservice. And this is not just the Department of um, Defense, but also almost every other agencies. And we don't talk about private sector is doing better job because we give them the money, we give them the contractors, uh, work, everything. The problem is those, um, probably is a disservice. So do we have any measurement of this type of disservice or the wrong realignment of the base? You know, you talk about BRAC. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they give you this amount just because some realtor or developer who want it. So, then is, sorry, just to, is the question, um, do we have a metric of savings? The measurement, what service really needed? What function is Okay, what I think we've doing. got it. Yep, who wants to take it? A measurement of savings? Well, uh, so whenever you... Of what's needed? Yeah, well, so measure of what's needed should be a function of strategy, uh, and then that flowing down to, you know, how we plan to accomplish, you know, the objectives of that strategy and what forces we think we need, uh, and we can start building it up from there. And I'll leave that to others to address. As a budget matter, how much could we save by these, you know, various types of reform? Uh, we do have some good estimates of that. Uh, you know, the Compensation Commission and their... Uh, Appendix D, I believe, at the very end uh, of the report, has savings recommendation by recommendation. Um, you know, if you look at base realignment and closure, um, the tricky thing about that is it will cost you some money up front in the first few years when you actually, you know, close bases, tear down facilities, do the environmental remediation. Uh, but then it will start saving you money over time. Their DOD, I think, has got estimates in their budget request for that. Um, you know, so all the things we talk about, people can come up with savings estimates. Uh, the problem is getting Congress to act on them uh, because every time you save money, ultimately that's going to mean fewer jobs in someone's district somewhere. I mean, regardless of, of how you do it. Uh, it's fewer jobs for someone, so someone's going to be unhappy, and so you're going to get resistance in Congress. Uh, and that really is why we have so much inefficiency built into our system. Uh, can I pick up on that last point? Because I'm actually doing I'm actually doing a study right now, a, a long study, a book on on base closures and defense realignment. And I do think there's a there's a general sense that when military spending is cut or when bases are closed, that it's about the lost jobs, right? That's the the typical approach. And remember, in the, in 2011, when when the debate over BCA and whether or not the sequestration would, would take effect, um, there were c predictions that there would be devastating economic effects in the country as a whole. Um, it hasn't played out that way. So it hasn't played out that way in the very recent memory. And if you actually look at the base closures, and actually Mackenzie alluded to this, if you look at the base closures that were done, especially the first four rounds, the fifth round, round was, a, was an awkward one, but the first four, um, most of these places did recover. And you shouldn't just focus on the jobs lost by the, by the decline in military spending. You should focus on the jobs that were subsequently created by releasing resources into the private sector. Now, partly that's a function of federal spending, which, has been, which applies in many of these cases. But over time, even federal spending is ultimately dwarfed by private spending. So we shouldn't just focus on the lost jobs, but we should focus a bit more longer term on what's actually gained. And, and there are a number of really terrific cases that I've studied um, that, uh, that really should inform this discussion about BRAC right now. Um, yeah. There are some aspects of acquisition reform that have been measured. For instance, uh, we have far too many IT systems, and there have been efforts to 
measure how much you could save if you consolidated a lot of those. Now, there are some aspects of acquisition reform that are harder to measure. But even there, and that's just one example, you can come up with some pretty good estimates of, of what can be saved. What is harder to deal with is the other side of the equation, which is the strategy side of the equation. And I'll give you two examples of that. The first is we pulled all our troops out of Iraq. We've now put several thousand back. Who knows how much more we're going to have to do in Iraq. We're already fighting an air war there. Some people would argue if we hadn't pulled all the troops out, there might not have been an ISIS to begin with. Who knows? It's counterfactual. So it's hard to measure that one. Another example is Europe. We pulled two brigades out of Europe to save money. Well, you could argue that that certainly didn't discourage Mr. Putin. And of course, we are now sending company-sized units to the Baltics. We're spending more money in other respects to beef up security in Eastern Europe. Would that have happened if we had left the two brigades? Counterfactual. Much, much harder to figure out when you start dealing with savings due to strategic posture, just what exactly those savings are and what the costs of those savings are because there may be some hidden costs and in the case of Mr. Putin, they're not terribly hidden. Okay, anybody else? Hi everybody, Michael Bruno with Aviation Week Space Technology. Chris, thanks again, always a good panel you put on. Um, Quick question for Todd and McKenzie, and, and then one for Dove and Chris. Based on everything you've written about the budget, do you see another potential sort of uh, Gates Bloody Monday from April 2009 <laughs> where the MDAPs get cold, you know, maybe at the end of this decade in 2018, 2019? And then Dove and Chris, you, you guys have talked a lot about roles and missions. Is the ultimate end result a, a doppelganger to the Goldwater Nichols? Or do you actually, do you think it's, you know, amending the Constitution so they don't staff, train, and equip the services by themselves? Yeah, so uh, the prospect for another Bloody Monday. If I remember correctly, I was April 6, 2009, because that was the day I started at CSBA. <laughs> um, so it's been very eventful ever yeah. since. Um, yeah, you know, is, there, is there the potential for another one of those? Um, not immediately. Uh, not this year or the next year. It would be something in the next administration. But yeah, I think there actually is. Uh, because of looking at the modernization bow, bow wave in the 2020s, uh, we are embarking on a number of programs that regardless of what we see with the BCA, I mean, whether we get, you know, the Thornberry level or the actual BCA level going forward, uh, I just don't see how we're going to be able to cram all of those major programs into the budget at the same time in the 2020s. Uh, and also, I think there's an absorption, uh, absorption issue in the defense industrial base. I'm not sure that our industrial base uh, could effectively execute all of those programs at the same time because the industrial base itself has shrunken and you know, we have fewer vendors uh, in some subsectors of the industrial base. I, I'm just not sure that it would all work uh, anyway. And so I think, yeah, there really is a potential, you know, maybe at the later part of this decade, you know, 2018, 2019, uh, for another big announcement where we see a lot of programs either cut, delayed, or deferred. 
I agree. I thought you were going to ask about the prospects for a follow-on to Ryan Murray, but so I appreciate the change in topic. I, I do also think it's likely, and not in this administration either, but probably within the next future year, within this future year's defense plan time frame, so in the next five years, uh, partly out of necessity to create budget headroom. That's one of the reasons Secretary Gates proposed it, and he did, and he was able to buy a lot of time to defer other difficult choices on the topics we actually are discussing here today. Gates oversaw, you know, the doubling size of OSD, or not exact figures, but, you know, he was not the secretary who took on any of these topics. Uh, so it's, it's out of necessity to create budget headroom and buy more time, but also because of the fact that if you look at the politics of defense, something that we are talking about a little bit today, it's a lot easier, believe it or not, contrary to conventional and popular wisdom, to cut a weapon system in R&D or even in production than to eliminate a legacy asset sitting out on the ramp or steaming in the high seas, whichever you prefer. Uh, I, I wrote a long article about this, and I used the Air Force as an example, but it's, it's politicians would, would rather take away a job that is coming online, right, than lose one back home. So it's coming uh, in addition to the bow wave factors that Todd outlined. Okay, over to Chris and Dove on. You want to go first? Um, sure. Um, I think one of the ways to get at this is, uh, which I've tried to allude in my, my <coughs> opening remarks, is that strategy is a function of resources, and, and, and they should go together, right? And yet we have a system in place where you have a quadrennial defense review, which is essentially disconnected from resource considerations to some extent, and then more importantly, we have a congressionally mandated QDR review panel, names changed slightly, which is explicitly prohibited, as I recall, from considering budget budgets in their assessment of whether or not the QDR is sufficient. I think that's a mistake. Um, if nothing else, let's have two. Uh, let's have let's have two reviews of the QDR. Uh, one by people who think there shouldn't be resources taken into consideration, um, but another group that thinks that there should be. Um, I think you'd have a better product in the end than one that simply assumes that the resources will be will match the strategy that they come up with. So I take a complete 180-degree view of this. Uh, basically, uh, borrowing from what Gates and others have said, the enemy gets a vote in all of this. And if you're totally resource-driven, as we were, say, after World War II when Louis Johnson was defense secretary, you get caught with your pants down when North Korea invades South Korea. Um, we have a terrible record, virtually a useless record, in predicting where our next conflict will come from. And you can say this conflict started because this president made a mistake or that secretary of state said the wrong thing or whatever. It's irrelevant. Once you're in a conflict, you're in a conflict. And we just don't predict those terribly well. So to say that your budgets should drive your strategy is in effect to say, for example, that our refusal to deal with entitlements limits the amount of money we can spend on discretionary programs, which in turn limits the amount of money we can spend on defense. Or to paraphrase the president, defense has to contribute its fair share. 
How do you define a fair share? Do you define it the way Kim Jong-un defines it? Or Putin defines it? Or Khamenei defines it? They would love us to pay our fair share. They would love us to pay even more than our fair share. So I don't look at the strategy budget relationship that way. The budget should be a constraint on strategy. It shouldn't be a driver of strategy. And I don't think the QDR was independent of budgets. I think it was driven by budgets. And it's a pretty anodyne document to begin with anyway. It's written by committee. And, you know, camel is a horse that was constructed by committee. I mean, it's the same kind of idea. <laughs> Uh, and it, it hasn't really contributed to the debate at all other than to allow analysts like all of us to write lots of papers and critiques. Um, there has to be a better way. Now, you mentioned Goldwater, Nick. One other thing. We do evolve, even though we don't necessarily admit it, in terms of our roles and missions. When I came back to the building in 2001, special forces, special operations forces, were nothing like what they are today, we, and by the way, they will soon be larger than the entire British Army. Um, we didn't rely on drones anything like we do today. Reaper and Predator and all the rest of them. Um, cyber? There was no cyber command. So we do evolve. I don't think we need a Goldwater Nichols for that. I do think we need a Goldwater Nichols for our civilians. I don't think civilians should get to SES level unless they've been educated, unless they've got experience, they shouldn't just be automatically promoted like some teacher's union. It doesn't work. It works about as well as teacher's unions work for students. And, you know, there's a lawsuit going on right now about that. So, yes, there should be a Goldwater-Nichols, but I think it ought to be for civilians. Can I just say, we're a long ways from Lewis Johnson. Look at your look at your historical tables. Look where we were in forty six and forty seven. We're a long ways away from that, and you know that, Duff. Come on, it's and, all and you also know you also know that that whether Lewis Johnson or not was successful in forty six and forty seven in cutting and in, 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 in keeping a cap on defense spending was immaterial in the North Koreans' invasions of South Korea. You know that, just as. And you alluded in your, in your earlier answer, you said, oh, we removed a couple brigades from Europe. Did that cause Putin to want to, you know, annex Crimea? Who knows? We withdrew from Iraq. Does that mean why we have ISIS? Who knows? Well, that seems a little too casual to me. I mean, yes, it's a counterfactual. But then everyone's counterfactual is equally valid. Um, I don't think you can make that argument. Well, the one thing that isn't counterfactual on uh, Iraq is that we pulled out in December, and if you look, that's exactly when Maliki really started oppressing the Sunnis. That's not counterfactual, nor is it counterfactual. When we had 180,000 troops on the ground, Maliki wasn't any more listening to us than when we had none. That is not true. It's not true. He, what, okay. Were, the political reform in Iraq that was supposedly so durable that we were able to... Political reform any... is one thing, and oppression is something else, and there's no doubt, and just talk to Iraqis. I was in Iraq last week. Which Iraqis? Which Iraqi? Sunni Iraqis. It's a big country, Dov. I mean, I can talk to a couple of Iraqis, too. I mean, uh, all right. this guy didn't reform the political system, which is what he was supposed to do. Okay, with folks, it, with you've it, heard it. both sides. Make it. 
I just like to say, for the record, I don't know who Lewis Johnson is, and feel very dumb. We both do. Lewis Johnson was secretary was uh, a very obnoxious Secretary of Defense uh, who uh, cut the forces significantly after 1945. Truman wound up firing him because he was so obnoxious. Uh, and uh, we had to triple our defense budget in 1950 when North Korea invaded. And North Korea invaded, because, in part, most historians say, because Secretary of State Acheson effectively said that South Korea was not part of our strategic concern. And, but that's, again, historical speculation. Thank you. Now I don't have to Google it when I leave here. Um, <laughs> let's take these last three questions all at once, maybe, and then wrap up like that. Does that work? George Nicholson, a uh, consultant with the U.S. Special Operations Command on Counterterrorism and Special Forces. McKinsey, a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago, you had Congressman Adam Smith, ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, and I asked him the question about the overall budget, and I said, in terms of people understanding to prioritize what we need for the military, and he said, I go back to my district, and my constituents talk to me about Social Security. They talk to me about Medicare. They talk about... I think about two months ago, the Pew poll came out of the American public. If the American public doesn't see the need of reinforcing what we need in the Department of Defense, and it's like Mac Thornberry said, he said, people forget, I've got to go back and be reelected in my district. How do you convince the American public uh, that, that we need to go ahead and remove the budget caps from the military? Okay. And then let's go here to the, yeah. Chick Feldmayer, I work at NAMO. First of all, I want to thank you for the panel. As a member of industry, it helps me deal with uncertainty a little bit better. <laughs> My question is, a year ago, you, many of your groups uh, had very detailed studies for recommendations for defense, uh, in both force structure and, re and resource allocation, similar to what you're doing right now. And My question is, given the past year with changes in threat and risk, what changes would you make from your papers and ideas that were written a year ago? Okay, and one more uh, right there. I'm Shaq Hill. I'm a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. I'm a combat pilot. Thank you for everybody who has served our country. Two of my children are going into the Army coming up, so I'm concerned about them as well. But just the fast question is, can we give medical vouchers to our veterans instead of forcing them into the VA system? Thank you. All right, let's start with the third question on medical vouchers. Well, we, um, the commission decided, partly because there already is a VA commission right now, that we wouldn't get into too much of the VA, uh, uh, VA's work other than where there was overlap with DOD. So, for instance, we've pushed very hard. You know, there, there is an executive committee uh, which uh, consists of the deputy secretaries of the two departments that really hasn't done very much at all. And so we recommended, for example, putting more teeth into that. I mentioned the PTSD issue. Um, but the issue of vouchers and uh, essentially saying uh, there are other ways for the VA to manage the health issue, and, you know, they've got this network of, of VA hospitals all over the place, um, that one we would not have gotten into simply because, as I say, there is a VA commission out there. Okay. The second question, I think, was about a, a budget game. 
that you did at CSBA, is that right? Well, yeah, you may be referencing um, CSBA, we did what we call a strategic choices exercise, and we did it about a year ago this time with a group of other think tanks. Um, and that was, notably, uh, before uh, the PB15 budget request came out, uh, before the QDR came out, uh, before anyone had heard of ISIS, or at least we had heard of ISIS, uh, and before uh, Russia decided to annex Crimea uh, and threaten the rest of Ukraine. Uh, a lot has happened since then. So I think it's a very good question. Um, how would people change their decisions? I can't speak for all the other participants, uh, but I think it is fair to say um, that, you know, perhaps some of the cuts in ground forces would not be uh, as deep. Um, but, uh, you know, I think also a lot of the changes that people made were not just cuts. They were cutting and then reinvesting in different capabilities. Uh, and I think the change in the security environment we've seen over the past year uh, the budget constraints that persist in the Budget Control Act, uh, I think that would lead people in all likelihood to redouble their efforts uh, to rebalance within the DOD budget uh, to, you know, you know, take greater risk in, in the short term uh, in terms of retiring some legacy systems to make room uh, for new capabilities uh, that we need to field in the force. And many of those new capabilities uh, are things that are not in the program of record right now for DOD. Uh, that, you know, we've gotten so far behind in many areas of the military competition uh, that there's a lot of change uh, that would need to take place uh, to do that. And of course, on top of that, we took this out, out of the exercise, uh, but all of the reform issues uh, that we talked about here, particularly compensation reform, I think that just leads you uh, to need to be able to do those things uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, and even things like a BRAC that will cost you money up front, I think you would see people doubling down on that uh, and still wanting to do it because of the long-term competition and the long-term impacts of not having those savings uh, and not being able to reinvest those uh, dollars uh, into things that will keep our military uh, you know, the best fighting force in the world, uh, not just today but into the future. Quickly on the last question, I think it's a good one. I believe we were at Brookings, actually, uh, for that conversation. I'll give Congressman Smith, ranking member, House Armed Services Committee, a lot of credit. I believe he fully supports the spirit and letter of our conversation tonight, the, the, the letter that uh, Chris mentioned earlier that was signed by 10 different think tank representatives, including the current Deputy Secretary of Defense at the time when he was at a think tank. Uh, so I believe his heart is in defense reform. So that's really, really good. But in terms of the question about, well, what are constituents talking about? I think it's fair. This is sort of a classic problem I think the founding fathers struggled with as well for elected officials. You know, how much do you push and how much do you lead and, and pull and react to what your constituents want? And I think there has to be first issue some leadership, right? And it does require bringing up adult conversations, even if they are not brought up to you. And, and I think that applies to all of Washington, not just elected officials. Uh, so I would, I would say that. But I would also say there, had, there was, um, I'm, I don't study polls, so I'll just broadly speak to this issue. But I believe in the midterm elections in 2012, I think polling you know, generally increased with national security as a concern because of Ebola and ISIS in particular, probably a little bit of Vladimir Putin's actions as well. And aggressive behavior. So there is some rising anxiety. However, I, I would obviously prefer proactive work on the part of policymakers as opposed to reactions by voters that only once does it feel like it's kind of touching a little too close to home do we take action. But I, I believe that some leadership is required from, from Congress, but also from the White House. Okay. 
Um, on the question about what changes since last year's report, the last report we did on this uh, was actually quite a few years ago now, We've uh, back in 2010. Um, and I still think that we could make some additional reforms, partly to military compensation, which we've already talked about, but I'm still not convinced that active duty end strength is at the right level. And I think we could talk seriously about a better mix, a different mix, between active duty personnel and reserve and guard and better integrating the reserve and guard into the total strategic force. The other thing, the other key, so the major savings that we identified five years ago were from personnel, both uniformed and civilian personnel. And those, uh, the end strength has come down a little bit, is projected to come out a bit more, but we've already talked about it. civilian personnel has come down hardly at all. In fact, in some respects, hasn't come down at all. So there's still, uh, the, I wouldn't change those recommendations. I, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. Right I would there. just uh, raise something because I think it's important not to let a session like this go, go by without mentioning it, and that is the actual role of the reserves. I, I agree with Chris on this one. It's not about Louis Johnson. We are in agreement on this. Um, that if you look at what the administration is doing, it's cutting both the active army and the guard and reserve. And that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. If you're going to cut one, you don't cut the other. That's number one. Number two, which is a real challenge, is our reserves now are probably as good as they've ever been. Uh, they've been an operational reserve for the last decade plus. And there's a real debate going on in the department whether that it should remain an operational reserve, which costs more, or go back to being a strategic type reserve where you focus on the drill as opposed to the job. Um, my view is it should remain an operational reserve, particularly if you're going to cut the active force. But they're cutting the active, they're cutting the reserve, and they haven't resolved that debate. And I think that's a major issue. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming, and thanks to the panelists for a great discussion. We are having a lunch on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is up the spiral staircase, and the restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Thank you. Thank you.